0: Hi there, my name is David Yun, and I've built this podcast for all of us photographers looking for some extra inspiration. Every Friday, I interview local photographers about the how and the why behind their projects, and at the end of each episode, I add a thought or a challenge for both of us to consider as we continue our pursuit of awesome photography. You can help me keep this project growing by sharing this podcast with your photo loving friends and by subscribing and leaving a review or a rating on your podcast platform of choice. Ultimately, the goal is to stir up conversation and thoughtfulness about photography as a practice. And I wanted to start each episode with a thank you. Your attention and focus on these artists and these conversations help the community at large keep growing. So, Without further ado, welcome to my viewfinder. So how are you? Nice to meet you.
1: Nice to meet you too. <laughs> so, what, what what did you get into? Like, how did you how did you start this podcast? I've been I've been listening for a little while actually. So when you reached out, it was like, oh my god, yes.
0: I don't know existential crisis. I think uh, this uh, photography venture is my midlife crisis. So uh, I've been just. Doing what I can for a couple of years, and then had an—I mean, it's not really this asshole's fault, but I think I was just burning out a little bit, and then I was on a street shoot with a friend, and uh, we were confronted by an angry racist. And um, oh shit! Yeah, and this is pre-COVID, uh, and we just—I don't know—it it got me thinking about why I'm even out there. Not in like a, I don't want to be confronted with, although nobody likes being confronted, but uh, I was at a talk with George Weber, and he, uh, a couple of years ago, and he said something along the lines of uh, the key to documentary photography and street photography is, I mean, we are afforded rights in the charter to be able to be out in public, but he's like, the moral question is: Am I trying to show my subject in their best light? Fair
1: enough, you know. And I, 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 when I'm listening to the podcast, like I always do, like there's little little sprinkles of it in some of your questions where I do get the sense that you're kind of like trying to explore your craft a little bit through these conversations, because it seems like you're a little bit of like a I don't know what I'm doing out there. Kind of like it, it seemed like you had a bit of a point of, of crisis almost, where I was like, dude, like. Yeah. So I that that actually shed a lot of light on it. And I'm the, these are this is gonna be kind of weird for me because as a journalist, I'm used to being the one who's asking questions, you can ask questions. <laughs> rather than yeah rather than um, having questions asked of me. It's funny that you mentioned George Weber too because he's a big inspiration of mine. I I feel like maybe we went to the same talk where he always brings up these points at his talks because he this is a point that he usually tends to make. You know, George um, has the privilege of being you know he 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 has privilege right you know he's, he's a white male canadian so he can you know go he can often gain access to some communities where um other races might not be welcome or or things like that so I, and actually some of his talks is, is why i'm going into a master's program on cultural studies basically to explore kind of like the ethics of ethnic like visual ethnography like are people's stories that you see on the street like is that our stories to tell where do we fit in with that? You know, it, like, why are you taking these photos? Are you showing that person their best possible light? Do you need to show that person their best possible light? As a journalist, no. You don't always need to show somebody their best possible light, especially if you know, you trying to speak truth to power. But if you're feeling vulnerable groups, maybe not. And Really, there's no answer to any of these questions, really. it's We're all just kind of fumbling around in the dark, trying to do it the best that we can and trying to be as, as ethical as possible. Some people trouble themselves with these questions, I think, more than others. I definitely have gotten into some keyboard wars online with some associated press photographers where, oh god, what does this guy say? So there was this uh, scenario in the States recently where they're doing a lot of land back action. Uh, the indigenous uh, communities are doing a lot of land back action protests. And this one photographer was in, you know, he, he was well within his right to take this photo uh, from a legal standpoint, right? So you know, just kind of like you where with with that street photography picture, like, you know, you're, you're on the street, kind of everything's fair game within our legal system. But he took a picture of these two people hugging as there's something burning behind them um, as the police swept in and removed this land back action. So there was like a bit of a tiff in his Instagram about, you know, there were some people saying like, this photographer wasn't respectful, the elders asked him to take photos and he did anyway. Uh, and then there was other people defending him saying, oh no, he was really respectful, he talked to the elders. So, you know, really it was kind of a toss up as to like what exactly happened unless we're really there. But then there was like a a comment, like in a discussion uh, in a form of photojournalist with this photographer, like, hey, like, have you guys had this happen? And like, I've had the cops called on me before um, taking photos down in in Calgary for some projects when I was in Mount Royal University, uh, their journalism program. Uh, And I was perfectly within my right to be there. And the cops agreed. But, you know, you still have the cops called on you. And one of the Associated Press photographers who is a documentary photojournalist who, you know, By all rights, really needs to build trust with the people he photographs. You would think, but I was like, look, this is my experience as a documentary photographer. You need to build trust with your subjects. Like it's always not necessarily about following the law. Sometimes it's about ethics, right? Like these people are vulnerable groups. Do you take that photo? Do you, you know, talk to the people afterwards and before? You know, it's a little more complicated than that. And the guy responded really, really. It was like. You're a photojournalist, you know, like you don't need to go out there and hand out hand jobs, you know, you just go out there and take your photo. And I'm like, dude, like, what? Like you're a documentary photographer man like you need to go and make sure you establish trust with your subjects like you this is a lot of the reason why um colonial media and you know there's it's such such a difficult thing in reconciliation um because there's a lot of deteriorated trust there so yeah within our laws we're able to do it but should you uh like it should you have some extra steps in there to make sure that everything's you know, like you're not really trying to speak truth to power to these people. It's to the establishment taking those down, right? So a lot of these things open up those kinds of questions.
0: My Viewfinder is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supportive. The Alberta Podcast Network is a program to support Albertan podcasts by connecting us with local businesses and initiatives to keep our stories and our interests at the fore. If you're interested in finding more Albertan podcast content in a wide range of topics, check out their website, albertapodcastnetwork.com, or you can connect with them over social media. They are at Albertapodnet on both Instagram and Twitter. Our first message comes from PodPower. With PodPower, our sponsors are making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. For this episode, Edmonton Community Foundation is helping us to give a pot power shout out to Overdue Finds. Overdue Finds is an Edmonton public library podcast. Bryce Crittenden and Caroline Land host conversations about books, movies, music, pop culture, and other interesting news about Edmonton. It's a great way to learn more about what's happening at EPL and about how you can use your library card to access all of EPL's in-person and online services. To listen and find out more about Overdue fines, head to epl.ca slash podcast. This week, I sit down with Stefan Strangman, writer and freelance photojournalist. I wanted to find out how journalism is taught and practiced, you know, to challenge my own cynical bias that it's just twisted by its very nature. Stefan shares with me how he became a journalist and how his own practice centers around a strong sense of ethics and personal beliefs. He explains that both through his education and work experience, he's become very aware of the impact photography can have on public opinion and understanding. He also understands that the ability and responsibility to share stories is changing, it's evolving. It's not just the privilege and the establishment that should endeavor to create stories. We're seeing marginalized groups gaining access to be part of the storytelling as well. This is a great jump off point. I mean, there's a couple of points that you covered. So for example... Uh, I was in that exposure studio uh, program and we had some great speakers and this theme came up and we did get a bit of a terse answer. (laughs) So the theme, I mean, two of the speakers were very interested. Uh, They're both black. They're both from England. One is, I think, uh, England, Montreal. I can't remember if he's originally from Toronto, but he was in Montreal when he gave the talk. And they talk about the colonial lens and about—I um, mean, I guess r- roughly whitewashing—but these ideas of where these perspectives come from and who's allowed to tell the story, and um, you know who builds that narrative. Uh, I did an interview with Twinkle Energy, and she's from India. And she talks about how you know the projection of what India is like has become so polarized because we think of everybody starving there, or with Bollywood that everybody's rich and driving Lamborghinis. But the reality is, it's another society. I mean, there's a middle class. There's people that are working every day. You know, they have their own socioeconomic problems and their own culture. But um, it's frustrating for her coming from that country to see how, you know, Europeans and North Americans view her <laughs> through that lens. But, you know, the counter argument, and I think this is what some of, I mean, of course, they're white. But, uh, you know, some of the counter argument is if the privileged people don't write those stories, who will? Who has the access to the media? So, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, what is your, as you know, as someone who works in this field, how do how do you make a delineation between, how do you balance... Your personal sense of morality or I don't know purpose uh, to these problems. It's
1: I, I think that's a good question. And it's one that I'm I'm like always trying to touch back on and and wrestle with constantly. It's actually the main reason why I'm going into my master's program is to struggle with these ethical questions because I, I am a, a white cis male photographer and there's like a billion of us. <laughs> and we we're all like we're all going in and telling these stories. And whenever you see a lot of documentary photography, really good documentary photography. It's by people who look uh, like me and from my cultural group, more or less. You know, I mean, we're on a monolith, we're not all the same, but still it's it's from, you know, mostly from Western white men. And so like, I've done projects where I'm like, yeah, I really like what George Webber is doing. I'm gonna try some of that myself. And, you know, I have the background for it. I can definitely do it. And you make a lot of mistakes and like it's mistakes are okay, but not when you're causing damage. Uh, luckily, like when, when I, I did a, a small short term, well, it, it's kind of like ongoing, but a, a project with a mountain Métis community up in uh, northern Alberta in uh, Grand Cache. And for the main story was really was really simple. Like I just visited a few people, took some photos and did a, a story in a Canadian Rockies annual about Métis businesses, you know, basically using essentially privilege to be like, look here, like, you know, like, here's how you can contribute and like the businesses, their lifeblood of that community. So I think if you're, if you're using it to give back, but then I also attended a round dance for, for the community and you know, I thought I did my research. I went and talked to all the cultural contacts. I did, like, everything you're supposed to do. I made friends with a, a local uh, videographer who's now a reporter for ADTN. And I posted some stuff on Instagram. I I gave all my photos to the community to be like, use these however. These are for you. These are these are of you. This is, you know, what I saw from the community. But when I was posting on Instagram, I, I wasn't specific enough about who was in the photos of the cultural groups? Like I thought I was specific enough, and I knew what I meant to say. But I got a call from uh, her name is Shayla Leonard. She's a wonderful human being and an amazing journalist. If you, if anybody's listening, go go follow her, please. She's wonderful. Uh, but she was like, she was really nice about it, and you know, she's under no obligation to check me, but she she did, and she was like, look, like you when you're reporting in this community, like there, there's a lot of identity politics. You need to be very, very, very specific to the point of like. I know this. Everybody knows this. No, you need to be very specific about who is in your photos and who you're talking to. You need to like almost over report and get way too much information and then you know put that out there like as much as you would think you need. And I was like, like, and I thought I had done everything right, but I you know, I still managed to fuck up. <laughs> it wasn't bad and it didn't like cause a whole lot of damage or anything. And I think I caught it right before anybody saw it, except for Shayla, of course. But you know, it still could have damaged my my rep within the community. It also could have, by association, made them less open to telling their stories to to other cultures, right? And that can like damage the cultural bridges that we're always trying to build. So I, I think like we're all learning, and it's it's tough because you want to do this stuff, but sometimes I even wrestle with the fact like, should I even be doing this? Like, why why am I doing this? Like, and you're right, like a lot of times what we're seeing is you know like we have like we have the privilege to be able to do these things and tell the stories it's really important for the communities to be able to tell their stories but they often don't and who will those tell the stories if we don't but at the same time you want those communities to be able to tell their own stories so finding a balance between that is is really tough Uh, it's still i'm just trying to be out there and do as little damage as possible and try to inform the world but you know yeah you can't always you can't always get it right
0: i mean the word right is interesting. I always end up devolving everything into semantics, but like, it's it's a funny thing, right? Like, I, I mean, even, I, you know, the first thought I had was, like, speaking of George Weber or uh, older journalists or sort of the bygone era of, um, you know, like the cl- the classics, you know, that was a generation, I think, where people were a lot less sensitive. I Just on the topical side, I, I, I don't know if that's personally true. But I feel like 20 years ago, you get less pushback trying to show a ceremonial process because you didn't name the specific people involved because they just needed some representation. But now it feels like everything is so tense, like not even just uh, minority groups but even communicating on twitter <laughs> it becomes so quickly into i mean i'm old so i call them flame wars still but like there's just uh, so much tension right like it's a lot of yelling at each other. One <laughs>
1: yeah i don't know i
0: mean do you i don't know how long you've been in the game but you've studied this so do you think that there's almost a block in communicating information through photography now or is it just part of the natural evolution of how to tell stories because uh this tension is uh, is pervading. The more people I particularly talk in street photography, the more people are, don't want to do street photography anymore, <laughs> except people that just like take snapshots of random folks and just post them on their Instagram. Pushing that trend aside, you know, narrative street photographers seem to be a lot more tense and worried. And uh, I, at least in my small circle, um, do you think that's just how it's always been? Or is there something changing in the in the world of photography?
1: Uh, yes, both. <laughs> the answer is yes. I think uh, a lot of that is that street photog- like a lot of new people are discovering street photography, right? So you got a lot of imposter syndrome. And with that comes, you know, people, especially in the current climate that are, you know, we're all very sensitive about each other's cultural boundaries. Um, so naturally people are going to be more reticent to take on work where they don't think they could do it justice so that's that's one thing but also this kind of mirrors like the evolution of ethnography and anthropology and academia too like i um it, like you're not going to see another like Nanook of the north in a documentary again and good because terrible just complete misrepresentation of of a culture uh, for the most part and and so things like that you know like how much do we interact with with things as anthropologists do we you know like a, to be tainted, like we're coming at it from a very privileged eyes, so a lot of self-examination in the acti- academia, it sort of like filters down a little bit into the culture, but there's also a lot of cultural social justice movements that have been helping that out. Those are driving a lot of the forces behind what's in popular media and photography as well, so I, I think photography still does have its place there, but i'm going to relate a lot of these things back to um work with you know reconciliation and, and post-colonial stuff because that's kind of where i'm, where I'm headed right now uh, or at least have experienced in the last most recent history of my work basically what is happening right now is there's a problem like a, basically a consultancy problem with uh documentaries especially ones that are initiated by non-indigenous people about indigenous people where a lot of times Indigenous people feel like they're just kind of consultants in their own story, but never actually telling their own stories themselves. And so there's this pervading idea that's growing that, you know, you should be able to tell your own stories. And there's been enough of external sources telling stories about the communities. I think that is making people very reluctant to get into territory that they might seem divisive or might paint them in a bad light. And... This is good and bad in that it's good that we should all really be self-examining and also being able to, you know, like help with these reconciliation processes to empower communities to tell their own stories. Because obviously there is benefit in having an external eye to a story. And that comes with a lot of things. Um, for, For example, there was a Singaporean photography part of, I think she's part of Magnum. Sim Chi Yin, uh, she's a Chinese photographer. Well, she's from Singapore, and she did a series of photographs in Beijing called "The Rat Tribe," where she photographed people living in the basements of of Beijing apartments. Like, you know, they you, know, you see them on the street; they just look like twenty somethings, right? Like, pretty trendy. They live in like terrible squalor uh, because they can't afford rental prices, and they're feeling the squeezed there too. One could argue that those people form their own subculture. So. You know, is it ethical for her to have gone there and done that? You know, probably because they're from her own nation. Like, she, they're of her nationality. She's, you know, the same. But I think that kind of translates into a lot of people's street photography now, too, where, you know, uh, things like homelessness, unhoused people, people on low-income brackets. You're out there making these photographs, but sometimes it can feel like you're taking photographs, like taking something from people. And I think that fear is is legitimate, too. Because at the end of the day, I think George is right, like, why are you taking these photos? Is it for you? Are you trying to make a social impact? Photography, when used properly, is a really powerful tool for, for social change. At least historically, it has been. And even in recent histories, look at the uh, World Press Photo Awards, you'll know, always see like photos that have gone viral. Even during the pandemic in Alberta, there's a photographer in Calgary or Edmonton. Uh, she photographed somebody who's, you know, like the, the doctor with her head in their hands. After just telling somebody that they would their, their family had passed away. So it's a powerful tool for social change. I just think that people are getting they I think they're maybe realizing how important and how powerful it can be. So it, people are getting really reluctant now to put their voice out there because it, it does have power. And if, if you do mess up, it, it can have profound impacts.
0: Like, how did you, what, why are you a fo- why are you photojournalist? <laughs>
1: like, how did you get how did you get into it in
0: formal training? Because so okay. much of modern myth making is about these, uh, you know, like intuitive savants that just end up somewhere <laughs> and they're building art. But, uh, you know, there's a focus here because you've studied it. So I, I mean, came out of the womb you... with a Leica,
1: like, and uh, ever since then, <laughs> I've been snapping away. I was I was my genetically engineered to click shutters.
0: Born for this. I was, I was born born
1: for this. For this. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh man, that's kind of a long story. I I feel like I'm at the point in in my career. I feel like I've been at this point for a while. where I, I tie being a journalist so intimately with my personality and my and my perception of self that I don't know if I could ever change it now. I'm, I'm 31 now, and it, my 20s was like really like a part of that uh, exploration of being like... But even then, I kind of was like, I can't really do anything else. I don't want to do anything else. And every time I kind of tried to stray out of that, I, I would kind of do it okay for a little while, and then I would just try to convince myself that I liked doing other things. And just, it, it, it you know... <laughs> My psyche eventually was like, no, like, you're not doing this anymore. Go back to the thing before. And then I was happier. So I started journalism school when I was like 18. And before then, I got like, in high school, like the Edmonton, like I grew up in Edmonton. So the Edmonton Journal had this like program where you could write for the paper as, you know, like a high schooler. And I was like, this is so cool. Like I get to go out and talk to people. I'm an extreme extrovert. So I love meeting new people. That's like my reason to be is to meet and talk to new people and like learn about them. And I love that. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm not going to keep this to myself. I'm going to just broadcast it to other people. And even before that, like, I was the kid who was always, like, making movies on crappy mini-DV cameras in, like, junior high. Like, if there was a video project or a photo project or any way to turn, like, a social studies paper into a multimedia thing, I would do it. I had a lot of fun doing it. So it kind of, like, naturally just kind of led to itself. And even in 2008, when I went into into J school, like, the future of media was really rocky. And, I mean, it hasn't changed, really. In, in terms of its uncertainty, it, it, things have changed about it. There wasn't any real social media back then per se. Like, I think Facebook had just launched in Canada like two years before that. So I, I kind of got into it in earnest when I was 18 and went to two years of uh, at McEwen. And then I loved it so much that I was like, okay, I'm gonna go get my full degree. Went to Mount Royal and it took forever to finish because, you know, mental health uh, issues and also, you know, having to, having to write uh, and work while well, at the same time as going to school. So it was a slog, but I was really proud to have finished it. And now I've been freelancing ever since and going back to school for something that's essentially gonna you know, help round that out even more. So I've been doing this for a little while and been pretty much obsessed for the whole time. And uh, I love to keep up on like the studies of things too. You know like if there's like new media studies i'm all over that and new studies about like do a documentary in in uh, groups about your own cultures i i think that also i like i I mean i could have gone into like just like local news and stuff but i i kind of really wanted i I was more attracted to the longer term stories things that have more of a social impact that take because the way that news is now they don't really like unless you're working for a really big outlet like the new york times in Canada, there's, there's barely any of them that really do this anymore. Where if your staff, like, forget about it. You're not going to do a, a long-term project. But you can pitch them and get paid six exams really less. So I kind of was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to make peace with the fact that I'm probably always going to operate at a loss the rest of my life. But this is something I need to do. I really need to tell stories. And a lot of this is like me trying to fit that into my worldview and struggling to wrestle with that. So I've been trying this for geez, uh, over 10 years now, uh, which is not as long as some of the other guests that you've had, but you know, I'm I'm doing my best. So
0: you have a natural inclination for storytelling and investigatory journalism, but you know, that's like that old eighties term, but you know, like wanting to understand perspectives and where people are coming from. When you get into school, and this is a little bit unfair because you, you went to a specific school in a specific city with a specific culture, but yeah, uh, what are they teaching you when you study journalism? I mean, you know, there's going to be classmates or people alumni they're gonna split into uh, both different sort of political polarities, but also different types and forms and levels of so-called journalism because that's a pretty broad concept. Is there something in the education that's like uh, talking about Reality formation, or is it mostly like technical aspects of how do you, how to get published and you know how to build projects at its core? Because you know, from a I don't know what the right you know metaphysical sense, photography itself has this positive and negative ability to tell people what they think ought to be real, and journalism in particular is a powerful tool to to shape. Uh, public opinion. So, are you trained to be aware of that? Or is this something that your own personal moral compass has to dictate as you become a professional? Because I, I don't think I could do what you do. I, I don't think I was designed to because I certainly didn't do projects, you know, talking to people on the street, you know, I was too busy uh, being angry at myself. So, wh- <laughs> you know, like, what is that like to learn it um, as a craft?
1: Well, I think every... Every journalism school is different. I'm sure you get a different experience if you're going to Ryerson or Carleton or uh, UBC. I think they have a program, or Uvic, one of the two, but or Mount Royal or even McEwen. I, when I did McEwen for two years, it was just a diploma, so it was mostly focused on technical aspects, heavily involved with writing and literature and, and legal matters. So that didn't really give you like a big like background into any of the metaphysics or or the philosophy of truth or of fact or of essentially exploring. I mean, they kind of taught you, like, try to be fair and balanced, try to check for sources, those kinds of things. So th- those are good foundational aspects of journalism. But when I went to Mount Royal, Mount Royal does a great job of kind of rounding out the education. So I, I they took a lot of what I had learned. I got lots of credit for it. Eventually, It took me a while to get the credit for some reason. Um, my transcripts got lost in the mail. I don't know what to tell you. But what they do is, like, I took uh, anthropology classes, I took classes on international community development, I talk a lot of, like, introductory philosophy and um, communication theory as well. Communication theory, oh my god, I hope my communication theory professor isn't listening to this, because I didn't really do very well in those classes. Not because I didn't understand the concepts, because I was, just like, going through a lot. So, I, yeah, Maria, if you're listening, I'm sorry but those ones were really profound like if you go over you know Roland Barthes, like Cameron Lucidia, the death of the author Descartes is important because you know one of his kind of thought experiments was you know don't trust your senses how do you know that you exist right you know like well I think therefore I exist I'm, that's that's the proof but it you know kind of goes above like more above that where like okay well what is your perceptions of the things going on around you how do you know they're real those types of things are, are gone into heavily. And I always found those really fascinating, because the, recently I also came up on this study that, because uh, I was like, oh, I gotta get a new camera, but do I really need slow motion if I'm doing documentary for, or documentary? And there was a study that kind of like sucked me all the way back in my thoughts, basically to my undergrad days, where it was talking about how using slow motion in video can alter perceptions of an audience based on what they're seeing. And, you know, that's like, you know, straight up Descartes and Roland Bars where it's the death of the author, like regardless of what you're intending to come across, things will come across to an audience differently for everybody because everybody decodes things differently based on their own culture, based on their own things. So the camera is an extension of our senses, right? So it's, it can record the facts of what's going on or at least one fact within a 35 millimeter frame or whatever format you're using does that represent the truth of what's happening because you know you're you're showing up at that split second but there was a whole bunch of seconds before that and there's going to be a whole bunch of seconds after that so you're trying to tell your perception and illustrate something based on one frame so it, it's tricky right because all these things can be altered for using propaganda I think that there is, you know, I mean, you also have to start off with the impression that there is a universal truth to something that you're trying to represent, (laughs) which that is also subject to a lot of debate. And, you know, like everybody can look at a body of facts and then interpret a truth from it differently. Uh, You see that with a lot of, uh, a lot of this is is very similar to the debates they have in science, right? You know, like (laughs) look at at the climate change debate. People can look at an abundance of facts and say, okay, climate change is real. All the scientists agree with it. But then there's a, a... splice of people who, for whatever reason, look at those facts and come to a different conclusion or just reject them all altogether, right? So it, it's tricky to be able to uh, find ways to decode that and represent the truth of what's going on. Because really, if you're out there taking a photo and you can think that that a perfect representation of a situation, someone somewhere will take issue with that or completely come to a different conclusion that what you had intended or, you know, like, oh, I was there. This is what I saw. Uh, being a journalist is a huge responsibility in that society kind of endows us with this trust to say, you are trained. You are trained to use your senses and extensions of your senses in reporting media to be able to go to a place, to go to an event and come away with some semblance of truth, So the facts, um, right. test hypotheses. So really it, it's very scientific, or at least it should be, um, to kind of go there and try to do that. But because it's a social science, you know, things are tricky. We don't always get it right. And, and maybe the, we can not represent the truth all the time, but we do our best and you know, what other methods have we got to do so? And then even if you do represent it perfectly, it can be taken by other people and twisted and warped into their own narrative. So it, it, it really doesn't matter. And that, that was kind of the thesis of death of the author by Roland Barnes is essentially, you know, it doesn't matter what you, like the author doesn't matter really. Um, it's what the interpretation is of, of those things. And I, that was always a powerful concept to me, where I was like, hey, no matter how good of a job that I do, everybody's going to interpret these things differently. Even if I do, even, even if there is a universal truth that I'm representing perfectly, someone will decode that differently. And those things are important aspects that I think are part of a journalistic education. I think that even if you don't go to journalism school, you should be familiar with those concepts because they're important. Uh, to be able to, you know, tell your stories.
0: And I remember I did a philosophy and religion course, and I wrote an essay uh, <laughs> to uh, like a Catholic professor trying to disprove <laughs> uh, a Catholic notion of God. Uh, needless to say, I didn't do well in that course. But,
1: but I, It's funny because we're a Good Friday right now, so what perfect time <laughs> to talk about <laughs> That's it. true.
0: I mean, there's a grander sort of topic about photography in general and its relationship to reality. But just to, just to sit on religion a little bit, I think it reveals one thing uh, for me, which is that this concept of, uh, let's say, faith culture becomes entwined with my uh, interpretation of reality so i talked to my friend who's a a professor of divinity and he you know we were talking about iconography and the use of images even before obviously uh, photography is involved and, and how it kind of shapes and can be shaped to support Uh, it could be now in reflection bias, or it could be a control mechanism. It can be like a million different things. And I think in hindsight, they tend to be interpreted negatively. Uh, Photography in particular is a strange thing. So, you know, I don't know. I, I think this is my problem. I can't get away from photography's power to alter and distort reality. You know, when you pick up a camera and you take some snapshots, it feels very benign, right? Because it's for me. So, I I go out and I'm playing with this toy, I, I take a picture. I'm not thinking that the lens is a separate eye, and that you know, its perspective of capturing light is different than what I perceive, never mind interpret with my brain and my culture, never mind putting it out to the world and having someone else tell me that I fucked it up. But it starts to evolve and, and it starts to pick up all of this meaning really. And I, I don't understand personally how to deal with that. You know, journalism is a strange thing. I mean, I, I remember reading some of the Magnum stuff, talking about sending war photographs back to the States, but the editor chooses what uh, photograph to use with what uh, narrative. And the photographers are usually upset because they're like, that is not what I saw. <laughs> that is not the picture that I like. I mean, what what do you think about how photography is being used? Not just in journalism. I mean, that kind of puts you in this bit of a a pigeonhole, but as a photographer in general, does it, I mean, it sounds like it bothers you like a little bit, That it has some power of altering people's, I guess, opinions, or I don't don't know how to phrase it actually, but yeah, like what do you think your relationship with the status of photography in general is? (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's, uh, That's a good question. I mean, I as a journalist, I do like that photography has power to alter people's opinions. That I mean, you know, if you see something like societal injustice going on, uh, that's a really powerful tool to enact change and to also tell the truth about an event or about something that's happening. But also, I think it's important to realize that photography doesn't operate like each photographer doesn't op- operate in a vacuum. Like if you're covering a, like a war, like you you kind of uh, put that there. It's important that there are many different photographers there too, right? Like, there's there, because each person really has their own inherent biases. This kind of goes back to like day one journalism stuff. Like, everybody, like how do you interact with your own bias? Because every person has a political leaning or religious affiliation or not religious affiliation, you know, like a background of their own. So, whenever you pick up that camera, your entire self and the culmination of who you've ever been to that point is, is now also being filtered through the lens. And that can have profound impacts to change other people's ideas right so uh, a good recent example of this is the way that the white house uh insurrection was was recorded there were at least like I know, like three or four seven uh uh photographers there are seven being the photo agency as well as a bunch of other news media but if you look at the photos from that you know some people were shooting in black and white some people were shooting in color you get completely different uh, interpretations of the same men. But that's okay because they were all there and you have like between all of them you kind of have like a large spread of data so that's good and then you know you can kind of like glean some sort of some sort of like me- medium between all those things i think that photography can also be warped to distort things right so that you know uh for example one of the the ethical questions we were always posited in journalism school is okay you go out to a scene of like a murder or something and um or like an accident and there's like gore everywhere like this is the truth of the scene there's just body parts i've been in this situation um in mexico city when i covered uh, well I was there during my honeymoon actually and i uh, ended up photographing during the earthquake but there was a lot of carnage you know like do you photograph that if you do photograph that is it ethical to publish that putting that on the front page of a then newspaper like on a newsstand where people walking down the streets i mean this is kind of quaint now because newsstands <laughs> like basically like okay like what if you're going to put them on the front page of the calgary herald's website where somebody's like eating their Cheerios in the morning, they're scrolling down and suddenly, like, boom, there's a decapitated body. And it's like, whoa, do you put that there? I mean, it does represent the truth of what happened, but do you do that, right? A good example of that would be the photograph of a person uh, jumping to their deaths outside the World Trade Center on 9-11. That was, like, gone over. I can't remember if that was New York Times or not. I think it probably was. But that was, like, thrown around, apparently, like, for a long time. Uh, whether or not to even publish that photo or even to show that. The photographer was like, ooh, like, do we show this? I think it was published. They got a lot of complaints. So even if you cover a certain event, your your selection of what to represent will alter people's perception of the reality. Because what if you didn't publish that, right? And you need to publish the, the thing like, oh, well, you no. I, I didn't see anybody jumping from the buildings, but suddenly seeing that makes the entire situation seem like you connect with that one person. That individual story, imagining what it'd be like to jump to your own death. That is an instant connection that I think anybody who's even like remotely, you know, has a sense of self, can instantly connect with and be horrified about. So that would change someone's perception. I think that's a powerful thing. I think that's a good way to represent events but also that can be taken the other way and warped and completely be used to misrepresent an event that, you know, or something, I don't have a good example of this uh, that I can think of off the top of my head, but if, you know, uh, to make someone seem more active in an arrest, say, for example, but yeah, a good example actually would be, well, I've got a specific one, but the slow motion study that I uh, referenced before they, they, they were using some slow motion tapes for a trial of an arrest. And the perception of the jury as to the level of participation of the person who was being arrested, when it was slowed down, he seemed to be more of an aggressive presence rather than when it was played at full speed. It seemed like the police were aggressive, you know, and and the reality was that the police were in the wrong there. But you can change things uh, to distort reality. And that's, it really is a double-edged sword. There's no good or bad to it really inherently there's good and bad to it. So it, <laughs> I, uh, I don't have any firm stances on this because there's, there's just, it's such a complicated question.
0: The second message is from Park Power. Park Power is your friendly local utilities provider here in Alberta. They offer internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. Here in Alberta, you get to choose who you buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. Park Power has low overhead, which in turn allows them to offer low competitive rates. Reach out for a no obligations comparison by emailing estimates at parkpower.ca. If you decide to switch, it's easy. It's really just a change to your billing and you can feel good knowing you are helping to give back to our communities with your utility bills. Learn more at parkpower.ca Okay, so what have I learned? I've learned of the concept of the colonial lens, we've heard that before, which is uh, the inherent bias formed when our media is filtered through an empowered storytelling uh, class. Traditionally for us here in North America, that's an upper middle class white male story. But I've also learned that we're all becoming acutely aware of this and opportunities are arising for each of us to share our own unique points of view. The drive for journalism shouldn't be to silence anyone, including the establishment. Rather, it's imperative that we take advantage of the digital media process to get even more stories out and in front of as many people as we can. There's a drawback, of course, oversaturation, disenchantment, and of course uh, the echo chambers. But there's a gain also. We might actually be able to develop the balanced opinions, ones that might help us learn to critically assess information. But where does that leave us? We can become overwhelmed with that sense of imposter syndrome or the futility of having to stand out in such a large sea of content. But it shouldn't take away the importance of sharing our experiences. On the contrary, it's probably more imperative that we each keep pursuing our own interests and passions. I think the key is to just take away the personal and short-sighted gains, commit instead to a grander cause of being part of a collective amassment of experiences that, in its totality, could make up culture itself, a single picture on its own has lost a lot of its staying power. But a collection of images still tells a story. And a collection of stories can still become a body of work, a potentially impactful one, perhaps even a necessary one. So uh, let's get out there and keep developing our stories to add to this grander project. This, uh, what did they used to call them? Encyclopedia of cultural experiences. Uh, Remember those? Oh man, I really am getting old.